0: Welcome to the Acton Vault podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Robert Doerr, a mortgage scholar and the president of the American Enterprise Institute, explores the history and future of welfare policy in America. Weaving together personal anecdotes and statistical insights, he explains the significant progress that has been made to alleviate poverty in past decades. At the same time, Dorr maps out many of the obstacles still standing in the way of further advances. This presentation was delivered as part of the 2019 Acton Lecture Series. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org/podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.
1: What we're going to do today is um, talk a little bit about poverty in America based on my experience in working in, I confess, government agencies that were devoted to reducing poverty and increasing work. Um, I'm also gonna talk a little bit about uh, my background and what got me into this world. Um, And so it's it's why I got into this business, where we are now, and a bit of personal history. Um, But it is true that at some point when I was a young person thinking about the future, I decided that I wanted to work in this particular sphere, in this area. And the funny thing about that is that um, it was the result of failure. Uh, and the story goes like this. We were uh, living in Washington, D.C. until I was about seven, and then my father was asked to start a community-based, public, uh, really not public, private partnership, community and private sector partnership uh, in Bedford-Stuyvesant, which was at that point one of the largest, most troubled inner city areas in the country, in central Brooklyn, New York. Robert Kennedy had decided that whatever it is that was going on from President Johnson's Great Society, was missing something. And to him, what it was missing was a community involvement. It was too much federal top-down. And he wanted to start something new in uh, in the worst, uh, most plagued, poverty-stricken area in his state that he was representing. Senator Kennedy was the senator from New York. And he asked my dad, who he had worked with, to come to Brooklyn <clears throat> and start a program called Restoration. It was one of the very first uh, partnerships between community leaders and private sector leaders to try to bring a restoration, a resurgence, an economic improvement to a very difficult area. Um, And again, that part of New York in that time suffered from bad schools, serious drug addiction, high crime, few jobs, lots of, of, of a sense of lost hope. Um, And I have to tell you that after seven years at Restoration, um, they hadn't made much progress. That's the failure. They had uh, helped a few people on a few blocks. uh, But the city of New York in the 70s and 80s um, still struggled terribly with all of the sort of Um, um, uh, difficulties of poverty and crime and bad schools. So this is kind of a summary. Lots of people don't remember this famous headline, and it does relate to Grand Rapids, so I think it's particularly appropriate. Uh, 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 New York City was broke, and they turned to President Ford and asked for assistance. And President Ford said... You know, these are times when you have to solve your own problems. And uh, eventually, there was a, a, a sort of compromise worked out, and there was some federal assistance. But the city really had to go on a very intense budget to get itself back on 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 um, on on course. But crime was high, poverty was ha- high, the city was broke, um, and uh, in the wake of uh, the blackouts, there was widespread disruption and and, and turmoil. And so. Uh, whatever it is that my dad had tried to be part of in Bedford-Stuyvesant in central Brooklyn had not proven to be successful. And I saw all of that as a young person. I watched that. I observed that growing up in the city and saw that uh, whatever it is we were doing, whether it was um, um, uh, from the federal government or the state government or from local groups, it wasn't having uh, positive progress. And what I came to believe was that While the efforts of the local uh, area were positive and and, and had some successes, they were overwhelmed by the entitlement and by the dependency uh, encouraging policies of the federal government. That if you came to public assistance at that time, there was a sense of welfare rights and welfare entitlement, and there was no aspect of personal responsibility. There was no focus on employment. There was focus on benefits and entitlement, but no focus on employment. And so I, by the time I came of age, um, after being a very scrubby JV basketball player at Princeton, my, I think my, my biggest highlight was a good pass in practice once. <laughs> uh, the, um, I decided that I wanted to go into to work in welfare reform. And so this is a sort of a kind of a picture out of our past. There's President Clinton and Speaker Gingrich and various other people when President Clinton signed the Welfare Reform Act of 1996. Uh, Here is Governor Engler and Governor Thompson and Governor Pataki and Mayor Giuliani back in in days when he was a, a different kind of person, or maybe the same person. He's just grown up. But in any case, these were leaders, bipartisan leaders, of a change in welfare policy that led to, I think, some very positive improvements in the way we serve and help people move up. Now, we're not all the way there. We haven't solved every problem, and we spend a lot of money. But we made some changes here that cascaded down into even a state like New York and New York City and made significant changes. And I was part of that. So I went to work for Governor Pataki soon after his election in 1995. So, you know, this bill was signed in 96. I was there. I saw it happen. I saw the change in a major federal statute that block granted a major program capped funding, imposed time limits, required work. And I saw how that actually worked because I was the commissioner at the state level and then later the commissioner at the city level where we actually dealt with uh, recipients of assistance and tried to help them move into employment and out of poverty. And so what happened? And what happened was that, well, first of all, the cash welfare caseload, that is the people in New York City, this is just New York City, um, who were receiving cash welfare, that is an, un, 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 an unconditional benefit for themselves and their family. Um, in 1995, there were 1.1 million. New York City at that point had less than 8 million uh, New Yorkers. So 1.1 and out of eight uh, was receiving cash welfare. Today, uh, or I, 2013, but it's also still true today, it's now down to something less than 350,000. Significant change in the way in which we provided assistance. This big, mostly federally funded program that provided cash aid without conditions um, has shrunk dramatically in New York City. Now we're a city, by the way, of eight and a half million. So the city's grown, um, and many, many, many fewer people are receiving cash aid. Child poverty decreased from 31%, To 18%. And we're going to talk about ways to measure child poverty, and they're controversial and difficult, but really, no matter how you measure it, there's been a dramatic decline since 1995 to today. It still may be too high, and you may not like the threshold. You may want the threshold to be higher, the income that determines someone in poverty. But using a constant threshold, no matter how you measure it, child poverty is dramatically lower in New York City than it was before welfare reform. And it's even lower now. In fact, it, I think it may have reached its lowest point of, of all time uh, in the last couple of years. So, And then this was caused by, so we reduced the caseload, we reduced child poverty. The real ingredient that made it all happen was this one. And this is remarkable, 20 percentage point increase in the employment rate of single mothers in New York City. 20 percentage point. That's a big increase. This sort of increase in the late 90s and into 2000s, doesn't happen and hadn't happened in any kind of um, social welfare program that we had seen. And it hasn't happened really in any other intervention. Only this intervention of work requirements, work expectations, time limits, penalties for failure to comply, led to significant increases in employment, significant decreases in child poverty, and a significant decline in child welfare, in in cash welfare caseload. So... um, and I would say that no one really on the left or right disagrees with this. This is not a this is not controversial. Something happened from the mid 1990s to the you know into the 2000s that is significantly different. And what I would say it was a focus on employment as opposed to benefits, and po- focus on responsibility as well as assistance. They come together: responsibility and assistance. So. Um, now I'm at AI, and I just want to give a. I'm going to go back to that topic in a minute, but I just want to give a sense of public sector participation as a as a as a practitioner. I was the commissioner for for Governor Pataki, and then I worked for Mayor Bloomberg. Then I came to AI, and I was allowed to do some work that allowed me to think back, call on colleagues, make connections, and produce um, a, a comprehensive look at all of the various programs that we have in the United States. And so here's one observation about the way we fight poverty in the United States. And the way we do it is in multiple silos, in multiple different efforts that don't all work that well together, but they all have their sphere. So this just illustrates, this is the volume, we have it upstairs for you to pick up. But you see, we have a, we have a Bruce Meyer is a famous University of Chicago economist. He wrote about the earned income tax credit. That's a significant part of our welfare policies. Then Russ Sykes was a former uh, deputy commissioner, ran the SNAP program in New York State. He wrote about food stamps. We wrote about, uh, AI Scholar wrote about Medicaid. I wrote about child support enforcement. Um, There was a a chapter on housing policy, chapter on uh, WIC, chapter on SSI, chapter on child care. The point I'm trying to make is is that, and it's often misunderstood, is that anti-poverty efforts uh, come in multiple ways forms, and they don't all come from the same department. They don't interact with the individual all in a comprehensive or coherent way, but there are a lot of them. And um, the other, the second observation I would make is that um, I'll give you a little sense of where we are now. How are we done and where do we still have to go? So this is, again, I'm coming back to the poverty measure, and the poverty measure is is, is a very controversial thing. There are lots of concerns about the way we measure it uh, the, the official measure only counts what people earn themselves uh, and maybe a little extra cash, but very little of the forms of assistance we provide. And that's a pretty frustrating line, this official line. I just gave you a positive uh, 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 decline. But here you see, overall, this isn't children, this is everybody. It was 13% in 1980, and it's 12.3% in 2015. Kind of frustrating. Up and down follows the economic um, Good times, it comes down. There's a little bit of a steeper decline in the wake of welfare reform, but, but then back up when the economy get, gets worse. But this is really, a, in my opinion, a more important measure. This is a measure uh, that measures not just um, what people have and they earn, but it also looks at what they have from other forms of assistance that they get from government. And here, the poverty rate has really dropped quite dramatically, less than 3%. This this reflects what is the material well-being of Americans. How much do they have compared to a consistent standard adjusted for inflation going back in time? So their material well-being has improved. There's no doubt about that. Which should have improved. We spend so much, we devote so much effort to try to shore up the material well-being of low-income Americans. What's a little troubling is that what they earn themselves is not allowing them out of poverty. They need this combination of some work and benefits to bring them their material well-being uh, down so that the percentage of Americans who are below that standard, and I will say again, the standard is quite low, roughly $20,000 a year for a family of, of, of two or three. So it's not a lot of money, uh, but when you count all the benefits we provide and you measure it consistently over time, We've improved the material well-being of Americans at the bottom of the income scale, but we haven't really done as good a job, in my judgment, as helping them earn their own success. Um, here's another way of looking at poverty in the United States or poverty programs in the United States. This is, uh, shows the spending at the federal level. And this is an important, um, ele- important major sort of elephant in the room to see here, and that is that Medicaid, our public health insurance program for the poor, is so much bigger than all the rest. It's bigger than everything else by by far, and it's actually bigger than all the rest combined. So when we talk about federal expenditures on low-income Americans, and we want to think about what of those expenditures are contributing to our debt or deficit problem? Well... The EITC is not really contributing to that. It's not big enough. The housing assistance isn't really contributing. Child care, these are all relatively small, very small components of the federal budget. The only program that really is a contributor is Medicaid, and it's a big contributor. So that's one thing. The other thing that's interesting about this imbalance, again, we've got child care, unemployment benefits, Head Start, HEAP, SSI, food stamps, AFDC, TANF. The other thing that's interesting is that this one is is in a whole different sphere politically. And a way I illustrate that is when I was a uh, commissioner in New York City or New York State and I would go before the state legislatures to talk about policy changes in child care assistance or employment services programs. It was often be me and a, you know, couple uh, scruffy advocates, you know, people that were in the programs uh, we're not well funded, but to come there to defend their efforts to help low-income Americans. Um, but when I came to speak about Medicaid, it was me and the most powerful uh, lawyers and lobbyists in the state, because the healthcare industry is a huge player in this business. They do good. I'm not criticizing them. There's a lot of good that happens in the healthcare world, um, but they are just so much bigger than everything else. So that's uh, another observation about poverty programs in the United States. A third one, and this is important. Remember that chart before I showed you before, earnings only, then uh, earnings plus benefits. This is what happens to family. This chart is a description of what happens with with households with children in them and a single mother, which is often the family that poverty uh, uh, resides in. So here we're we're just sort of seeing well where what are their sources of income and how much, so that the this particular household, uh, the parent is earning thirteen thousand four hundred forty six dollars from an eight dollar an hour job, which is full time. The poverty threshold is about twenty thousand dollars. As I mentioned, she's still in poverty. And often you'll hear poverty level wages. I'm 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 understand that phrase, but the fact of the matter is is that most, and I don't mean like Um, 55%, I mean like 90% of single parents in this circumstance also benefit from these other package of programs that raises their total standard of living to significantly above the poverty line. So the take-up rates for the earned income tax credit for a single mother with two kids working full-time are 90%. They all file a tax return. They all seek the the refundable tax credit that Boosts their wages, that is one of America's biggest anti-poverty programs. They also um, have very high take-up rates for food stamp benefits. There's also child support collections available to them so that we make some effort to get the other parent to contribute to the support of the child. And the take-up rates and eligibility uh, determinations for someone in this circumstance getting Medicaid, also very high. So this is when we talk about uh, single parents with children in the household who are working at low-wage jobs, this is also what happens. They earn not a lot, they're struggling, but we have a package of programs that are widely available and um, benefited from that they leverage their, their, their employment income to top up and bring them above the poverty line. This is how that poverty measure I showed you before declines from what you earn versus what you earn plus what you get from government. And this is a widespread, well-accepted view of the of the poverty measure, that the only really effective way to measure poverty is to look at the whole picture to see all of whatever, we, whatever it is we're doing to help low-wage workers. The other thing that's essential here to understand is that if you take the wages away then you definitely have to take the earned income tax credit away, which is the second largest element, because you only get that if you work. And then the package of benefits we provide to non-working individuals from the federal government or the state or local government is really quite small. That's why work is so important. That's why having a benefit program that provides aid but doesn't talk about employment is really letting the recipient down and failing to see the whole picture and see their way out of poverty. It's ignoring a glaring problem, which is that without employment people are not able to uh, uh, rise out of poverty. So uh, this is, leads me to some conclusion that I have reached. Now I've sort of skipped through all of the details and maybe at question and answers we can get into them, but my my view is after working in, in this, for 20 years and then thinking about it is that programs that provide aid to re- people in need of aid should require work they should say in return for assistance there's a reciprocal responsibility that comes with this assistance we're going to provide you for and that may mean that you need to go to a place and that's going to help you get a job and if you're not there and we write you a letter that you didn't go to that place when you weren't working and you're not disabled and we have child care for your children, uh, we're going to warn you that your benefits are going to be at risk of being cut. Um, The other thing is that we should reward work. I am a big believer in the forms of public assistance that say to people who are working and doing their best, what can we do to make those wages go farther? How can we reward work by either a refundable tax credit the provision of child care assistance, the provision of uh, food stamp benefits, the provision of public health insurance. So we have to require work, but we also have to reward work. The third element, and we haven't... There are lots of graphs I could show you about this and the extent to which children raised in single-parent families are five times more likely to be in poverty. We should talk about family. We shouldn't ignore the fact that on average... In all kinds of domains, children raised in households with two parents, active and involved, there for the long haul, do much better. Two parents, active and involved, there for the long haul, and in the United States, that normally happens in marriage. And we should be willing to talk about that and educate young people about that fact. When I was with Mayor Bloomberg, he was a big believer in public messaging, and he wanted us to send a message about that to young people in, in communities all across the city. And so we did advertisements and bus and subway posters, which made it very clear: children do better if they have the benefit of two active and involved parents uh, there for the long haul. We had one poster which said: if you graduate from high school and get a job and get married before you have children, you have a 98% chance of staying out of poverty. We got a little blowback for that, but Mayor said the Mayor Bloomberg said, What are you talking about? It's the truth. And when we did focus groups with young people from poor communities and asked them what they thought about it, they said it was the truth. There's nothing wrong with being honest about prospects for families um, when they don't have the benefit of two active and involved parents. The fourth is you have to promote a strong economy. The economy is a major force in helping people move up. It's why we are now, in the United States, I think the lowest African-American child poverty, the lowest Hispanic child poverty, Um, Because the economy is really working on all cylinders, we still have these various work support systems that encourage and reward work, Um, and um, so the economy matters a lot. And people in social services that are concerned about efforts to help the business community that might reduce revenue, i.e. a tax cut, really, in my view, are a little bit short-sighted. They're not seeing the benefit, and they're not recognizing how important employers are to the fight against poverty. And then finally, you have to let civil society flourish. We had a great partnership with many faith-based organizations in New York City and New York State who did important work. If they weren't there, we would not be able to succeed. And every time there was a discussion at a very high level of various regulations or policies that would prevent a faith-based organization from being able to deliver that service or get in their way, we would back off because we needed their support. So let civil society flourish. So require work, reward work, talk about family, promote a strong economy, and let civil society flourish. Those, to my, in my judgment, are the key. Now, where, where are we now? One of the elements thats strugg- that we're struggling with as a country, this is labor force participation. All Americans, 25 to 54, so their working age. It was 83.7 in 2001. It dropped in the wake of the recession to 80. That's And by the way, this is... Every percentage point is a big number. And now it's back to 82.5. That's good. We still have a little ways to go. My personal view is that the food stamp program and the Medicaid program do not have enough in them that focuses on work. And too many Americans are not working and are in those programs and are not getting the benefit of somebody saying, how can I help you get a job? There's no focus on personal responsibility in those programs. They truly are sign up as fast as possible, and I'll see you in a year, which is not really helping a family. So we could do better on labor force participation. Wages are growing uh, a little bit faster than they have in the past and even faster for people at the lowest end of the income spectrum. That's good. Um, The prime age work rate for men in labor force is the highest rate since 2010. That's good. And inflation remaining low is also good. I bring this up only to say is that someone who sort of started this in 1995 is that it just happens that right now is a pretty good time, relatively speaking. We have more to do, but uh, uh, we are, are making some progress. So those are some observations about, my, about what I learned as I focused on these issues in New York State and New York City. But I do have um, uh, a, a little bit of uh, guilt to get out of the way here. So I said that the reason I devoted my life to fighting poverty was failure, and I related that failure to my father's career. And that's, you know, that's true. Watching what happened in Bedford-Stuyvesant led me to devote my life to this issue. But my father's career is a lot more interesting than just Bedford-Stuyvesant. And if you will, will permit me, I just would like to tell a little of that story, because it's a good one. And it's one that I think uh, says something about our country. So dad was born in New Richmond, Wisconsin, uh, up in the northwest corner of the state. Uh, about 50 miles east of Minneapolis. These are his four grandparents, Maggie Larkin, John Doerr, Dennis Denine, and Anna Denine. He's the one on the left. He was the second son. Um, and he then um, went off to the East Coast for college and the West Coast for law school, and he was back in New Richmond, practicing law with two children in 1959. And um, he was perfectly happy, but he felt as if he wasn't doing enough to help his country move forward. And he wanted to kind of get in the game somehow. And someone called him up and said, well, you know, I have a job here in Washington and there's only a year left in the Eisenhower administration and you're a good Wisconsin Republican, um, but uh, I can't find anybody else to fill it. And it's in this new division of the Justice Department called the Civil Rights Division. And my father's desire to to sort of get into the, 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 the job of helping his country motivated him to move to, New York, move to Washington to take that job. And he very quickly found himself in Haywood County, Tennessee, and East Carroll Parish, Louisiana, and Fayette County, Tennessee, where he brought the very first voting rights cases by the Civil Rights Division uh, that were brought and that, that contributed eventually to the passage of the Voting Rights Act. This particular picture I, I like, he took it himself. He was a lawyer who did his own investigating. Uh, this is a picture of, L.A. Perry of Haywood County, Tennessee, Mr. Perry registered to vote in May 1960. In July 1960, after farming the land of Homer Rainey for 15 years, Perry and six members of his family received a notice of eviction to move at the end of the crop year. So you see there's his his, uh, family. Dad uh, presented this photograph, and accompanying affidavit, and others like them, and evidence in U.S. v. Beatty et al., one of the first important voting rights cases brought by the Civil Rights Division. Prior to 1960, no African Americans were registered to vote in Haywood County. By 1963, 2,300 African Americans were registered. So it was the beginning. And that effort combined with Dr. King and people from the North who went South and people in the South who saw that the the country had to change led to significant change that I think um, no one can argue was positive and a step in the right direction. Um, but Dad did other things in the Civil Rights vision. He became kind of the face of the federal government in the South. This photograph is taken on, in Jackson, Mississippi, on the day that Megger Evers was buried. And his funeral was held that day. And after the funeral, some of the young people, Megger Evers was a, a head of the NAACP in the state of Mississippi, and he was killed on his front porch. Um, and uh, after the funeral, some of the people who had been in the funeral were kind of angry and hot. And they started moving toward downtown Jackson. As you can see, the law enforcement uh, officers of the state of Mississippi and the city of Jackson were ready. Um, And dad stepped between them and said, uh, my name is John Doerr. I'm from the Justice Department. Anybody around here knows I stand for what is right. You're not going to win with bottles and bricks. That's what they want you to do. Uh, Soon after his appearance on that street in Jackson, uh, the streets were quiet and a riot was averted, people getting killed was averted. When he went back to his hotel, there was a message to call Washington, and they put him through to the White House, and President Kennedy uh, congratulated him on serving his country well. Um, He also was the chief uh, lead of the investigation into the murder of the three civil rights workers, uh, Andrew Goodman, Mickey uh, Schwerner, and James Earl Chaney. He also, by the way, prosecuted the Viola-Leonzo case, uh, and was the lead investigator in that. Both of those cases, in one in Alabama and one in Mississippi, before an Alabama jury and a Mississippi jury, Mississippi courtroom, Mississippi judge, Alabama judge, led to convictions of Klan members who had murdered civil rights uh, workers. Uh, and that was an important turning point in justice in the United States. So um, he had an interesting career in civil rights before Robert Kennedy asked him to turn his attention from civil rights to poverty fighting, where the, the challenge, in my judgment, was uh, uh, of a different kind and required uh, uh, different approaches. Um, so, <clears throat> the uh, last thing I'll just say, because I just can't resist, uh, this is the words of a person. Uh, I think it's fair to say that I might not be here had it not been for his work. And there's President Obama giving Dad the Medal of Freedom in 2012. So. Um, I put that in there only because the main thing I want to say, and I'm 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 a little embarrassed by it, um, is that I am very positive about the United States of America. I have observed uh, difficult challenges, hard problems being solved, and progress being made, um, and I think that's what we have to always keep in our mind, of the things that we've been through, that we have tackled, and we've moved forward. I happen to think civil rights is one of those stories, and I happen to think we've made some progress in poverty fighting as well. Um, The fact of the matter is, if you're with someone who's on the far right, and they say, oh, you know, we fought a war on poverty and poverty won, that's really not true. Similarly, if you're with someone on the left who refuses to acknowledge the enormous efforts we as a country have made to help people at the bottom move up, and the extent to which those efforts have led to progress, they're wrong too. So from my perspective, um, uh, the, these problems can be solved if we work at them. That's what I'm demo- devoting myself to do at AEI. Um, we are a, a think tank of ideas. We're Washington-based but not Washington-focused, and we want to bring people together to solve hard problems and advance uh, causes that have been consistent uh, and part of our history for a long time. Freedom, free markets, free people, justice before the law, economic opportunity for all, a strong America role in the world. Um, and so that's a little introduction to me and a little introduction to my past, a little introduction to my views on poverty, and I will stop now, and I'm sure we're going to have a very lively discussion session. So let's have some questions. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Hi, my name is Laurel. Thank you so much for coming. It's great to hear from you. Um, obviously, you told us about some of the great successes that you've seen. Can you just kind of let's, okay, we have an action item. What uh-huh. would you say is the most successful aspect that we can move forward and implement? And would you say it's best to look at this from the federal, state, or local level? Well, that's a, those are both very good questions. I, I definitely think that I'm still a great believer in the local and state perspective. That's where I came from before I came to Washington. Washington plays a big role because it provides a lot of funding and it runs some large programs that both do good and can also do some damage. But the real action, what I tell young people when they come to me and say, I want to work in this field, happens in cities and states and towns. That's where you can really make a difference. Um, now, having said that, the thing that I focus on always is employment. I just think that to look at benefits or, or uh, access to benefits or transfer payments or any number of other ways don't really work successfully for a family or an individual unless they're also moving rapidly into a job. And so if you're asking me what is the one thing I'm concerned about, it is, is that we still have too many Americans that are on the sidelines and are not taking advantage of the opportunities that are available. We have more than a million more jobs available now than we have people seeking them. And to me, benefit programs that are all about benefits and not about helping people get into employment are making a big mistake. So that's where I've spent most of my focus. Now, the other area, uh, because I can't resist, is family. I really do believe very firmly that we need to say way more to American young people about how important uh, uh, two parents, active and involved in their children's lives from the very beginning and for the long haul, are, and how that is most likely to happen inside marriage. So, you know, when I was in New York, we talked about work and we talked about family and, that, and ways in which we could encourage those two institutions to help struggling Americans, we felt was going to pay the biggest dividends. Yes, sir. You had your hand up.
0: Uh, Yeah, hi. My name is Philip. Thank you for coming. Um, I just moved out here from California, so I was hoping you could answer a question about that. Um, The Clinton-era welfare reforms that you mentioned and the ones that worked in New York so well were met with considerable resistance by California's Department of Social Services, because if they got people out of poverty, they would have to cut funding and subsequently fire some of their workers. And so they resisted a lot of means-tested welfare. How do you get past that sort of incentive structure?
1: Well, the story in California concerning the cash welfare program, which I just described, is different than in New York. And they, um, as I understand it, we're more concerned about maximizing federal revenue than helping Californians move up and out of poverty. Um, And the way that that should be addressed, in my judgment, is uh, through um, the aspects of the federal oversight that do come with um, teeth. So I'm a federalist. I like state and local flexibility. I get that. But sometimes when the federal government provides significant funding and support, they get to say that here are the rules. And if you violate the rules and you're not being consistent with the spirit of a work requirement or expectation, then we're going uh, to intervene. And sometimes I think over the past 25 years, that intervention has been interrupted or intercepted by politics. And that is, we're now getting into really into sort of social services in the United States 101, But the fact of the matter is, is that there's this state-local partnership in all of these programs. And the federal government provides money and some oversight and some rules and guidelines. And to the extent to which the programs use those rules and guidelines effectively to both promote flexibility and innovation, but also compliance with certain rules, is what is the dynamic that if it's working well, leads to progress if it's working not so well, I think, uh, doesn't. And so um, in my view is the story in California is that California sort of had its own way of seeing things and the federal government in multiple administrations didn't really intervene. Um, now, having said that, I'd have to look at the data about uh, over the whole period because I would be surprised if there wasn't still some decline in child poverty in the wake of welfare reform in the late 1990s and early 2000s, because that did really, those early years, a lot happened. And um, so, that's what I would say. Yes, sir. My name is Richard, and you'd mentioned about uh, about a million that had not achieved that wage earning. What are your thoughts as to how you can encourage people then to want to work and actually get those jobs? So um, there are lots of things you can do at the local level with faith-based and community-based organizations. But if you have a large federal program that has a relationship with individuals because they're giving them health insurance or they're giving them food stamp benefits, and that large federal program is not saying when they come in to get their benefits – I need you to show me how you're looking for work or going to work or what you're doing to get training and education. If it just says, my job is to give you the card and see you in a year, then, the, then the, the program that is there to help them, locally based, faith based, it's just much harder to have people come and seek that aid because they're getting assistance without a condition. So my view is that whether it's in Medicaid or SNAP or in housing programs or even in certain disability programs, where it's all about providing the aid unconditional, um, that that the way to help get people off of the sidelines is to encourage them through case management, some sort of effort. Now for conservatives, that means the government has to do a few more things and has to actually make an effort and, and act like it can solve a problem. And my experience is it can, when it's properly led and guided, um, and, but it won't if the message is your job is to prove your success merely by signing people up for the benefit, not help people get out of poverty. So that would be my ingredient. Now, the other is I should also say that, that employers have a role here too. I mean, I, I, I happen to believe that, um, that, that a job is better than no job. Mayor Bloomberg always used to say that. The first rung on the ladder is better than not even being on the ladder. Um, On the other hand, some employers uh, do more in the way of training and welcoming and nurturing. uh, And and when they're at their best, they are by far the best bringers up and out of poverty than any other institution. Um, So I like a really tight labor market when it's so hard and employers have to raise wages Increase benefits, increase training, make a little extra effort. I mean, when I go around the country uh, these days, I, I'm a sort of a, I look at the labor force all the time, constantly wherever I am. And what I'm seeing is is that there are a lot of people who are working now who weren't working before and are being drawn in because the economy is so hot. And I love that uh, because once they're into uh, an employer-employee relationship, they're part of something that can give them dignity and respect and some education and some opportunity to move up. They have to take advantage of it. They have to see it. But if they do that, I think there's progress. But, but again, to my judgment, if it, the question is about people on the sidelines still not working, I, I think you'll, if, you, if you unveil that and go back and back and back, you'll find that they not, may not be working, but they are receiving some form of assistance, and that form of assistance comes without any Addressing of the issue concerning why they're in need and the main reason they're in need is because they're not working Yes, sir Mr. Dorr. Thank you for your uh, work on something so incredibly important to America and for coming to West Michigan I Noted on your chart that had five things that are important to do There are uh, several strong verbs for acquire, reward promote but about family It's talk. (laughs) That's a good, very good point. Address. That's a very, very good point. Should that have a more muscular verb? That's that's a good point. And where have you seen that done successfully? Well, it's a hard one because you can't mandate or pass, you can't really use government intervention to require people to make certain decisions about their marital status. Or I have a concern about that. Um, and so this, this is a little bit of a wimpy word. You're right. I, you know, maybe I'm wimping out there. You can change tax policy, and we do a lot in tax policy already. We could do more to incentivize and reward married families. Um, that's a possibility. You, know, you, could, you, could, you could make it promote family. You could do more. I, I, I acknowledge that. That's a very fair point. Well, the, This is very much a product of me being someone who worked in New York, where getting into these issues is very sensitive and very careful, and so I've sort of learned over time a way to put it over that that I can get get through with, and I acknowledge that. Um, but in some places, you know, I go to I go to conferences. You 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 could get up from here and go to a social services conference of any thousands of types all across the country, and they won't mention family at all, ever. So from my standpoint, in that crowd, in that audience, and I should also point out um, that when I was the commissioner of New York City's Social Service Agency, I went to see Cardinal Dolan. And I said to him, you don't talk about marriage enough. You, you don't talk about marriage enough. And I'm a practicing Catholic. I've been to a lot of masses. I, 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 I know all of that. But I think sometimes we haven't said strongly enough that... Um, Children need the benefit of two married parents, and marriage is a sacrament. Um, So um, I've I've defaulted to talk, but you make a very good point. Is it right there or here? Yes. Yeah, just to follow up on that, my observations, because I worked at the state of Michigan for a while, Uh is there were some disincentives to have the father in the household rewarding additional children. Can you speak to that? Yes, um, in, the, in the there's no question that there the, the the old TANF program and still in some respects now there was a in the benefit programs you could ensure yourself of a larger benefit if you kept the other parent out of the household because the way in which the budget was created, the other parent would Ooh. contribute to bringing your benefits down because they were another source of income um, so that's part of it I don't I don't know, we've done some things, at least in the EITC, to mitigate that, Um, but that does exist. Uh, I don't know that that is uh, the entire cause of the failure of, you know, increasing number of young people not to get married before they have children. Uh, And by the way, this is a problem among African Americans, it's a problem among Hispanics, and it's a problem among white Americans. Uh, More children are born to single mothers in the United States every year who are white than are black. So this is a problem of all of us, um, but yeah, I, I whenever I I, I um, would face up to that issue, uh, the the way to correct it was always viewed as too harsh. So you might put one of the policies was a family cap. Every additional child, you get no further benefit amount. That seemed a little harsh. Um, so now the other program that does also exist is the child support enforcement program. Michigan has a child support enforcement program. I used to know the head of the child support program was Wally Dukowski for years, one of my great friends. Um, That is an effort to say, okay, you're not married, the father's not in the household, but he still should have to pay something. He He should fulfill his financial responsibility in some way. And that's had some success in bringing additional dollars into the household, which reduced poverty. It also turns out that if someone pays child support, they're more likely to have a positive emotional Relationship with that child, so um, I've strayed a little bit from your point. But the the fact is, you are correct that when you try to help single parents without ch- with children, um, you are going to provide aid, and in providing that aid, you might give them a sense that they don't need that other parent, and we don't we don't. Uh, that's not helpful. Yes, sir. Uh, it's just a, another sort of similar observation.
0: This is coming from... Thank you. <clears throat> uh, thank you, Mr. Dor. Thank you for being here. So this is just a similar observation about disincentives, and this is kind of coming from my experience of around a decade of working on the South Side of Chicago at a faith-based, community-driven organization in a neighborhood with about 20% unemployment. And so uh, a thing that you see over and over again is that a family is receiving benefits, say food stamps, for example, and based on their family size and other number of factors, they're getting around maybe five to 700 bucks a month in that aid... But then the moment, they're, the moment they go to a certain threshold in terms of their income, there's not a gradual decrease. It just drops to zero. And so I think when you talked about earlier some of these sort of departmental silos, I think you know, part of that is the problem. But when we talk about sort of that gradation that happens, it's just that steep curve. How do we start to mitigate things like that?
1: Yeah, that is a, um, a common concern uh, when you receive uh, earnings or uh, income from work and you are receiving benefits, that income gets counted against you. And in SNAP, it is supposed to be gradual. Every additional dollar, you lose 30 cents in SNAP benefits until you get to a certain element when you're no longer eligible. But that means your income's gone up significantly. Um, I tend to think that it is true that there is some work disincentives to sort of take the next job or to take the pay raise. Um, and That's especially true in childcare. although... It's also true that you're not supposed to rebudget childcare by federal law until the next year, so the parent is given an opportunity to prepare for that change. Um, the one solution to the problem, if you were decided that problem was really severe and needed to be addressed, is you would just increase the amount of benefit you pay even further up the income scale. Um, and I have some reservations about that because that comes with a lot more costs and. You know, when I talk about the combination of work plus benefits helping people get out of poverty, I celebrate that. But I don't know that we want to have work plus benefits gets people well into the middle class. I mean, at some point, the provision of aid from the government has to end, and people need to be independent. And um, so uh, I get your point, it comes up a lot, it is an issue. Uh, just If you know, in the world of, that I come from, there's something called transitional benefits. Some states lock in the benefit that you had even after you get a job for one year. So your, your benefit is frozen for at least a year so you can transition. The same is true in child care. Medicaid is similar. You don't lose Medicaid eligibility right away when your income goes up. Um, so you're right that that's an issue, but I think it's an issue that we can work through. Yes. Yes, sir.
0: Again, thank you, Mr. Dorff, for being here. Um, you you mentioned the word in, in just your last statements <coughs> there about independent um, and helping people, encouraging them to become more independent. Right. Um, nothing is more independent than entrepreneurship, business ownership. A
1: lot of what we talked about here today is, is about getting a job, working for someone else. Yeah. Um, what impediments or um, uh, difficulties, obstacles um, do you feel like might be in the system to the, the, the prospect of someone um, having business ownership as a way of lifting themselves out of the poverty equation? Well, I think the impediments there have to do with human capital issues, training and education and understanding that that's available, entries to business licensures, the idea that we have these elaborate licensures policies where someone who wants to be a hairstylist has to go to courses longer than they would if they were trying to become an EMT person, for instance, those are all efforts that part of government, kind of outside of social services, that prevent people from starting their own businesses. And there are plenty of those, and AI scholars have written about that a lot. Um, In the world where uh, I come from, the social services world, it's kind of interesting um, independent contractors and this issue with regard to um, watching your wages so they don't go so high that you lose your benefits, it's actually easier as an independent contractor to manage your income so that you always stay a little bit below. And one of the understudied uh, aspects of the gig economy and Uber drivers and Lyft drivers is that they can manage their time and manage their income very well, and they, they could, keep it just below the eligibility cutoff point for various benefit programs. So it, it goes both ways for independent contractors or someone who starts sort of is on their own. You can, you can sometimes use it to maximize your benefits. And then if the policies of the state prevent your ability to get into the business or their entries to starting a business, those will stop you. I'm, I'm more focused on that second category because I want people to start their own business. We've done a lot on, on the problem of, of state and local licensure policies that prevent people from getting into business.
0: We have time for one more question.
1: Yes, ma'am. Well, Again, thank you very much for being here today. Thanks. This was very interesting. But I'm, and, and I appreciate everything you said, but I think about things like media, marketing, movies that affect how people feel about themselves. And so this has all been about the financial end of Mm -hmm. it, which is very important, but I think we're forgetting about the, the spiritual soul, psychological end. I was a writer for the Helen DeVos Children's Hospital for 25 years and I interviewed many families who had some very difficult circumstances and the ones that came out of it had family support and a faith. Faith, family, friends, and community, okay? I, I think that's absolutely correct. And that is a great way to finish. You're absolutely correct. Um, what, what is internal to someone is matters as much as anything else. And um, and all of what I've tried to describe is a sense, and this is why I try to start with the hopeful message, because I do think that messages that we give to young people and struggling Americans about how there is no hope, it's a rigged economy, the system's broken, Sends a message that they accept, and it holds them down. And I just say one more thing before, and I'll have what just one. When I was, I one of my favorite uh, scenes from my career was I was at a reentry program for people coming home from prison, and so it was a, a, a conference where various providers, faith-based, uh, community-based, for-profit. And government officials were there to learn, how do we help people come home from prison and get off to a great start? And um, as often happens in these cases, there was someone who had had been a real success story. It was a young man who had, after a couple uh, missteps and had difficult times, he had finally come out of prison, gotten a job, and was doing well. He was in a trade or something. And he was there to sort of celebrate uh, his success. And someone asked him, well, what was the key? To yours? What, what made the difference? How did you do it? And the whole room sort of leaned in because all these providers wanted to hear what trick one of them had that did it, and including me. And he said, the difference was when I decided I was responsible for my own future and that I could do it. And then he started. And so I completely agree. But the other story of the welfare reform story, you know the story I showed about the million New Yorkers on cash assistance and then the work rates went up and... And and you might think that I was trying to say, and I hope I didn't, that all those people were taken by the hand by some government official and given a job and that, that that's what happened. No. People who we had given up on as a country proved to us that they had dignity and respect and capability and potential. The vast majority of the people that went to work in the wake of a policy that said work is important were people who just said, fine, I get it, I can do it. So if you treat people as liabilities to be managed, as incapable of taking care of themselves in any way, then you're not really helping them. But if you look at them as people that can do things and then structure a program around their potential, you'll make progress. Thank you very much.
0: As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Jaja.